Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Murphy, uh, my favorite guy in the world, one of them. Definitely better than Yanni because uh, two reasons. I, I, I just genuinely like him. And two, he makes my job easy. I don't need to drag out. I don't need to like wrestle out thoughts out of him. He's just got thoughts. So here he is, Kevin Murphy. So glad to see you, like, yeah, kind of, because we got, I got, I got to look at you through a computer, man, which is not my preferred way of doing this. You know, uh, I'm the same way, and uh, good seeing you guys. And, uh, you know, it's kind of strange. Just the, like a week before you called me up and said, hey, you want to do a remote podcast? I had told myself I had had some bad experiences over the telephone interviews and doing some things that I would never do a remote podcast over the telephone. I had told myself, but I am eating the words down because you guys are just like family with me. So. I have oh, thanks, no problem, man. no problem at all sitting here and talking to you guys. It's just like y'all are in the room with me. So yeah, I agree. Generally, I, I would stick with your, uh, I would stick with that. But everything's, you know, a lot of exceptions going on right now. And uh, on a one to ten, Kevin, how how bummed out are you about how we weren't able to pull off our squirrel and rabbit trip in March? Oh, I was bummed out, but you know. Yanny said, hey, we're going to, yes, a 10. (laughs) Because I was up there pre-tuning and ready to go. And I bought my damn yearly license, too. (laughs) So you may get a bill for that. Yeah, so I I, I didn't do the regular five-day or seven-day whatever. So I went ahead 
and I was going to go back up there, but I decided not to. But we had a really good time. My seventh trip to uh, Barron Springs out of the last eight years, shot a little footage, saw all my amigos up there doing a hey you to all the people around Barron Springs, and enjoy you very much, and look forward to coming back next year. So I, I love going to Southern Michigan. I really do. Uh, very nice people up there, just like home folk, uh, dog lovers, uh, good stout rabbit population, and have a good time every year. And you can't hunt in Kentucky in March, so it's... Uh, kind of the tip of the spear as far as the end of the hunt season and then you get to start all over again good have you hey, ever seen oh, it i got a i got a rabbit no, go question. ahead go ahead go ahead because we're right now we were gonna before we plan that trip we were gonna have kevin come out to montana and hunt some small game but the rabbit numbers have been so low and this Dude. is going this is going on probably three four years no it, i don't think they've been really good like really really good since 2008 really so, good so 12 years since they've been like where you feel like something bad's gonna happen there's so many rabbits yeah now kevin have you ever seen like just numbers really low where you've hunted your days you know um i've only been a rabbit a real uh uh top-notch rabbit hunter in the last uh since about 2011 when i retired and I see those cycles. You know, there's a lot of things that can happen. You can have a wet summertime, wet spring, and then a lot of the offspring die off. Uh, sometimes some uh, parasites and disease come through and wipe them out. Now, with the squirrel population crop, it's a food food driving thing there. Uh, we had some late frost here the last couple of weeks. I'm a little bit concerned about some of our ac acorn trees. It kills the uh, caspians on, those, uh, on the tree limbs, so it could cut the, our food back. But rabbits, like I said, usually moisture, I think, is more of a thing that dr drives those guys up and low that affects them, you know, when they're in the nest. Drives the baby rabbits out. Um, they are, what do y'all have cottontails up there? So they're born. Western, yeah, Western cottontail. Yeah, yeah, they're born naked with their eyes closed. So, you know, they don't have much to uh, protect them uh, uh, from Mother Nature, the, the elements. So I'd say that's one thing. But. Um, habitat is the big issue around here and we had a wet spring and a wet summer last year so it knocked our population down quite a bit I talked to quite a few rabbit hunters and they said they were having difficulty finding rabbits and we've killed some really small rabbits towards the end of February or the, our season goes out the tent so the last week we killed some rabbits that were really small and they'll cycle all year long you know try to raise offspring if the winter is not too too bad hey Yanni what year was that that we were down in Wyoming hunting antelope that was ridiculous amounts of rabbits yeah, I was just trying to remember what, what year that was. Because um, that was like as good as it gets. Yeah, that was probably like 2013-ish. Okay. We we put in some miles hunting turkeys this weekend. Saw one cottontail. Normally in that neck of the woods, there'd be a lot of them. But uh, yeah, it's been dismal. So then we 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 were gonna hunt here with we were gonna hunt Montana with Kevin. Then we we're gonna hunt Michigan, and we got we got derailed by the the pandemic. And Kevin Yanni was saying you had some. What's your take on this whole pandemic situation, man? You know, this is gonna be my thirty sixth year of germ warfare, and uh, explain that. I'm a water wastewater guy. Uh, degree in environmental geology background work started out working the health department in 1985 
of being an environmentalist, going around doing different, lots of different things, testing water, making rat poison, a couple of tons one day. Uh, uh, tell tell me real quick, real quick. Uh, <laughs> Give me the basic recipe on making a ton of rat poison. You know, I was just throwing whatever they told me to do because I was brand new. <laughs> I didn't know what I was handling, whatever. But uh, we had a little concrete mixer, show, throwing stuff in there and bagging it up and stapling and giving away for free. Uh, huh. dog, dog rabies clinic, clinics. And then uh, I worked at a power plant for a while and they put me over in the water department and uh, – Make sure that uh, we were sucking out river water. Make sure that was the chlorine was at a residual high enough to kill back all the pathogens in it. And then I transferred over to the wastewater plant in 1989, and I spent from 89 to 2003, uh, or, no, till 2011, uh, working my way up to the top of the totem pole on the wastewater system and uh, being environmentalist and making clean water every day. So. Uh, back in the so you're creden- so you're you're credentialed to you're credentialed to at least have an opinion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I was permitted. I'm, I'm a class four operator. I can uh, operate any plant in the United States. I'm qualified to do that. I do yearly CEUs, and I've I've passed the exams to do that. Um, people can work under me. Um, I knew early on in my career as I worked my way up. With Nashville is only two hours away. Within two hours, anything in the world could be, I could be face-to-face beating a person, or it could be in the sewer system. And the sewer system is very hostile to some pathogens, and it's very inviting for others. So I grew up in that heyday of hepatitis C, uh, AIDS, not knowing a whole lot about it, uh, Ebola outbreaks, and I started reading uh, books and journals and trying to protect myself. I would go and have to pull samples at the at the local hospitals to make sure that they weren't dropping anything into the sewer system that they weren't supposed to be, like you know broken mercury thermometers or blood pressure machines or acetones from the lab, all that debris. So I'd have to go out there, open up a manhole, and you know I'm right there in the front line of everybody in the whole area sick. So I knew that I could personally be uh, uh, engaged in it. Uh, my guys could be uh, face-to-face with it, or I could bring it home to my family. So I started reading some, some different books uh, about pathogens, Ebola, uh, mad cow disease. It, I just found it intriguing. It was kind of a way to let my mind drift away from work, but at the same time learn something about work. And I read a book, and I, I got out the other day looking at it. It was on the, the Spanish flu of 1918 uh, called the Great Influenza. And um, by coincidence, I came by Fort Riley, Texas, or Kansas back in uh, December. I was with Zach from CZ and his wife. She's an environmental engineer for Kansas Light and Power. And as we drove by the military base, I says, I am pretty sure that is where the Spanish flu started, the epidemic. And that's where it was first recognized. And it swept the world, just killing millions upon millions of people. And... um, I said, it was, you know, very intriguing. I, I grew up in a small community. When I was a kid, there was three sets of orphans, all about the same age, 40 to, they was probably 50 years old, somewhere in that time frame. I don't know a single orphan from then or from now. But after I read that book in 2005, I did a timeline, and their parents evidently uh, died from the Spanish flu. And that's oh, what yeah. that's what the Spanish flu, it uh it uh, concentrated on people of childbearing ages and, you know, 
probably the book says like 50 million people, you know, died worldwide. But so many people died in India, they don't have any, any idea what happened. They try to compare. That's amazing because this is the this is the thing that people draw. You know, this current situation is the, when people are looking for a parallel that they reach for that. Yes, they do, and, and I don't see it based on my experience in reading the books. And they want to compare St. Louis to Philadelphia, and and I went back and read some of the book. You know, St. Louis is right above the uh, river system from us, a combined sewer system. Waste goes out to the river to dispose of. Uh, they had some really sharp dudes in uh, um, St. Louis, and then Philadelphia, a wartime city. People jammed together, households of maybe you know fifteen to twenty using an outdoor privy, so they were constantly in contact with each other. Uh, so I asked some of the the, the, the engineers that works. I want to see somebody do a, a, a comparison between Philadelphia sewer system and the St. Louis and the population and all that to see how it 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 compares. But uh, you know, from what I read in the book, and the guy's name was Barry. He wrote that book, and he wrote another one on rising tides about the great floods along the Mississippi River. So he's a very good historic author that that takes his research very seriously. So um, I don't see it. From, from what I see, from the numbers that I crank out, it is a flu. My mom is 80 years old. She needs to be careful what she does. I have a friend that had a liver transplant. He's 57. He needs to watch what, what he does. But, uh, you know, we're all one microbe away of being wrecking our system. My former boss, Don Heiss, uh, he came down with West Nile virus, and it wrecked his system. And I talked to the doctor at Vanderbilt University, and he says, hey, Kevin, says everybody in this mosquito pit, it's West Nile virus. You may feel bad for an hour or two or two or three days. And he said, on some rare occasions, I see it wreck somebody's system like your boss. And it just totally, you know, annihilates and paralyzes him from the waist down. And he had to have a trach. And he fought through it for, for five or six years and then finally passed away. And a very good person, a very good person in the community. But very health, vibrant, you know, for an older guy, rode his bicycle, uh, helped everybody out in the town. But like I said, you know, if I was a germaphobe or whatever, I wouldn't be able to do the travels that I do and go out and do the things or be a, even a hunter, you know, knowing that there's viruses out there, rabies, you had trichinosis, I think, you know, you just take that as a human being. We're very resilient on what we can do. We build up an immunity pretty quick. And I'm a firm believer, you know, in that. Uh, but, you know, when I went to uh, Mongolia, I did take a, a um, I think, a diphtheria test. I had my latest tetanus sh shots, and I do believe in vaccines. And if there's something available there, I will study it there. I might not be the first dude that gets a shot, but after <laughs> after a few people take it and look at it, uh, I will. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a firm believer in the, in the vaccines. And I'm a dude, too, that, you know, I had the mumps, uh, the measles, chicken pox, uh, and then, then I, I got I went through a line one day at school, and they vaccinated me. And this alien, it come up here on my 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 shoulder and popped out there and grew a bacteria culture for smallpox. So I have been vaccinated for smallpox and have the scar for that. And a lot of the the young people have not never went through uh, any of that stuff. And you know, I can remember my mom, all three of us, my sister Kim and my brother Kent, we was running ass wild through the house. With, with the mumps, and my mom said, 
Kevin, if you don't settle your ass down, says your nuts is going to shrivel up the size of a marble. So, you know. That's what happened know, to Yanni. I don't know <laughs> if I listened to her or not. <laughs> I do have two kids, so. <clears throat> but I do remember her saying that. So, uh, But, yeah. you know, I've been exposed to that. And we've become sterile America where we won't even hardly drink tap water. You know, you go in the office and you see, a, uh, you know, bottled water, a water machine and all that. And there's a certain amount that you can get immunity I've got a good friend that he, his dad's an engineer. Uh, they had a plant in Iraq or Iran, and he said, man, Murphy, I hate going over there when I was a kid. said I would I would get dysentery every time I'd go until I build up immunity to it. And he had a, he showed me in college, he had a bottle of tap water that come out of the, the municipal system over. Hell, it didn't look any better than Barkley Lake. And I just saw him back in February, and I asked him, so, man, remember that, that bottle of tap water that you had from Iraq or Iran? And his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, I bet my mom still got that. I said, that just fascinated me. And, you know, small things like that fascinate me that we take for granted in this country that, that other places, you know, they don't, they don't have that, that, that mechanism that makes sure everything is as safe as it can be that we just take for granted and uh, don't utilize, you know, the research that's out there. Yeah. So tell me real quick about uh... – this hunting station wagon you're working on? Oh, I brought back from the dead yesterday a American Motors Corporation 1984 American Eagle four-door, four-wheel drive station wagon that has not been uh, fired up since 19 or 2008. So 12 years it has not been on the road. I got it jacked up, put some weed eater gas in it, got a young boy out there showing him the way. He's 38, says he's raised on a farm, but he's scared to death of a handyman jack. So uh, he said, man, you can't pour that weed eater gas in there. I said, yes, I can. So the gas tank was bad. So I just cut the fuel line off the uh, uh, the, the fuel pump and got me a water bottle. Now, I do consume water bottles. It is very convenient a lot of times. And I filled it full of weed eater gas, which was some lubricant in there, and stuck it down in there. And we fired it up, and she never missed a lick. Uh, jacked it up, took the tires and wheels off of it, and then just let her sit there and idle and spin and lube all the uh, seals and everything up. So I'm going to bring it back to the dead and maybe drive up to Montana and go hunting and let about six or eight beagle hands roll out the back end, and we'll be like back in 1984. <laughs> so you're saying it, where you're from, uh, it used to be that you'd have, a, instead of a hunting truck, you had a hunting station wagon. Oh, I can remember that as a kid, and I've been on a mission here the last Oh, a couple of weeks, I put the feelers out to all of my friends and jump people and everybody that I know. So, man, I'm looking for some kind of vintage station wagon. And everybody says, man, Murphy, when junk got up really high, you get two or $300 for a body. Everybody started crushing shit. So uh, I found a big uh, Buick Estate uh, wagon over in uh, Livingston County. So I drove over there, and it had a Pearl Harbor survivor's license plate on it and I pulled into this trailer there and I kind of looked at around it looked like nobody was living there and I went down the road a couple of miles and found two dudes on the side of the road talking to some farmers and I talked to them about it so well it's so-and-so lives there so she comes to the door she'll have a shotgun I said that's the kind of lady I like to deal with all up front <laughs> <laughs> she means business so I found this American Eagle it was only like two miles from the house so I got the local uh, car guy I'm always dragging in scouts and wagoneers and vintage four-wheel drives. So I got him to haul it to the house yesterday, and he was kind of saying, man, yeah, before you spend a bunch of money, you need to fire it up and all that. So I got it fired up yesterday afternoon, and I, I sent him a picture of it, and he was as excited as I was that uh, brought it back from the dead. So, you know, I just like projects and doing stuff. 
and get it going and, and bringing the old stuff back. Why uh, Why was it a station wagon thing back in the day? Is it is just because of availability? Uh, yes, because it was family cars. You know, and I was talking to the to the uh, uh, Mark Bailey, the record guy. He says, you know, when I grew up as a kid, says we raised Holstein cows and said we would buy a bottle cast from a guy over in Callaway County and said he had a station wagon instead of a pickup truck. He says, you know, a new pickup truck was about $5,000, and he could buy an old used station wagon for 500 He could haul his feed, mineral. He'd call calves in it, whatever. But, yeah, it's just kind of availability, something cheap. There was a lot of station wagons out. And, uh, you know, you can't call a, haul a bunch of kids in a car, so it's multi-purpose. You know, it's like the minivan of the day, the station wagon was. There's three three of us kids, and then my mom and dad, and then we'd put the dog in the back. And, hell, sometimes we just have a sedan and haul the dogs in the in the back of it. We didn't have a hunt, you know, a designated hunting truck like a, like I sure. do now. So, yeah, it was availability and uh, necessity. And then you got, uh, you got this new dog. Yanni was telling me you named a dog Wings and Things. It sounds like a restaurant. <laughs> you know, the dog was pre-named. It took me three months of my best Jedi negotiating to get this dog. It, it came from uh, Patrick Flanagan, and it was never about money. It was about being worthy enough to own a really good, outstanding hunting dog. And I wanted something small, and I went with a, uh, hunting in uh, December out in Kansas with Zach of CZ, and I had my bird dog setter, uh, Dan, Lieutenant Dan, out with us. And he's a, he's a pleasure to hunt. He likes to go out, make a circle, come back in, get his head rubbed. And I've got another. Why, uh, why do you call that dog Lieutenant Dan? Oh, it's just got a good ring to it. You know, Lieutenant Dan, he's worthy. He wants to serve you and do whatever's necessary. Gotcha, now, gotcha. Now, uh, and so I, we hunted with uh, Sage, which was the brother to Wings and Things. And. Uh, we hunted on a Saturday on Monday, the Monday before he was neutered. So they turned him loose and he out hunted all of our dogs put together was a machine. And he went out and he pointed something out in the middle of the field. And I walked up there and I saw something gray and furry. The first thing that thought that went through my mind was it was a badger and I needed to protect the dog because I didn't want the badger to tear his foot off, you know, uh, uh, Bite him real, real hard. So I hollered badger, and then I got to looking at he had a coon pointed out there in the in the field. So I'm thinking multi-purpose dog, and I asked him, says man, is this boy Patrick Flanagan is from border to border? Has he got any dogs left like that? He said, I think he's got three. So my I started negotiating in December for the dog, and finally ended up getting the dog in March. So uh, she's been a constant companion. What, what, did the, what did the negotiation look like? It looked like a lot of being worthy enough to to own the dog to uh, convince me that I was going to hunt and take care of her because the dog was born on his girlfriend's Lacey's birthday and she named the dog Wings and Things. So I had a hmm. whole lot to overcome, and um, uh, finally he gave in. We had a couple trial runs where the dog was supposed to be delivered. I couldn't show up, and uh, finally got the dog. And after I had the dog for three or four weeks, I sat down one day and wrote Patrick a handwritten letter telling him how much I appreciate him letting me have the dog. And I could tell what kind of dog that she was, a very highly intelligent, highly motivated, and a very special dog. And that there's more to life than money. And a good hunting dog to a good person is a good thing. That uh, I didn't even have a will. Uh, I know all my stuff's going to go to my two kids, uh, Seth and Caitlin. 
but I, I wrote out on a Mongolian uh, note uh, that uh, if anything happens to me, that the dog goes back to to Patrick Flanagan and had his phone number on it. So I put where, all that where did you there. put that note? Hell, I can't find it. I don't know where it is. But uh, uh, I, like I said, I told Patrick anything ever happened to me, the dog would go back to him and Lacey. So what sort of questions was Patrick asking you in this like interview and process? <sighs> Well, just kind of, you know, how much you're going to hunt? What are you going to do? Of course, they had seen me. What the hell's he think? What the hell's he think you do? Has he, didn't he look you up? <sighs> yeah, he did, and he saw, and and that probably helped me hunting with you two guys and see that I was a true <laughs> dog guy. So yeah, y'all, you guys helped me convince uh, them that uh, that I was worthy of having a really, really good top notch bird dog. He's he's very particular about his his dogs and who they go to. It's not you a, know. I think a better a question. Hunting, right? I think a better question would be. Is he worthy of you having one of his bird dogs? Oh, I think so. Uh, he's he's a dog man in the clan, so I think very much so. Very much. Now, why didn't you change the name from Wings and Things? Like I said, it seems like a restaurant you find in. You know, oh. she's got she's got two uh, spots on her that look like a pair of wings. Get your ass over here. Oh. Oh yeah, see, we can we can see her right here. There's two spots, kind of hard to see, but they look like a pair of wings. I think so, they look like her kidneys so, are sitting outside of her body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's kind of kind of docile right now, but uh, I don't know how they come up with that name. But you know, it's kind of like changing a ship's name. Once you get get it, it's bad luck to change a dog's name. She responds. She's a very responsive dog. I look you know what happened to with her? We, we just got a dog for our kids. And when the dog came from the pound, they had named it our daughter's name. Okay. So we didn't want to have two people named Rosie. Well, so we had to change the dog's name. Well, that's that's certain circumstances. I can understand that. Yeah. I can well, understand and that. those dogs at the pound, they've only had those names for hours, let alone days. That's what we thought, too, is like the dog doesn't even know that that's what they named it. It, no. it could be like the horse I bought one time that uh, I made a deal on a horse and then I asked the guy what his name was and he looked at me and then he looked at the horse and said his name was Star. But she had a star on her forehead, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I'm pretty sure that's where it come from. It didn't have a name till I asked. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, over in Mongolia, they don't give a horses a name over there because they might have to eat them sometimes. Oh, I got you. So, so uh, yeah, I want, I want to get to this Mongolia situation, but we got a couple other things we want to talk to you about. What, when you're yelling at that dog, what are you going to call it? You can't say wings and things I, running around I, in the woods. I just call her wings. You know, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, I just holler wings. It's kind of like you know, Butchie Bad Toe. I just call him, you know, Butchie. Is when, when me and him's out there. So uh, I shorten it up. And a lot of times you just say here, and she'll come in, come in here. So you know, when I'm out hunting, especially birds and stuff, I try to keep the communication down and use a whistle. Uh, because yeah. the animals, they, they hear your human sound and they know that there's some shit up that you better be looking out, you know? So I try to keep, you know, sometimes squirrels don't give a damn, you know, and the rabbits on time you need to be quiet with them is when they're one circling back around. Other than that, you know, you can talk and carry on. And that's why I love small game hunting so much. Cause you can be out there and with your friends and showing new people what's going on. They don't have to be super silent, you know, just, just go to the moments where you need to tone it down and be quiet. But, 99% of the time you can talk and bullshit around. So, Yanni's got a question for you. Well, no, I was just going to say that. Th- I feel like that name is fitting because the more I think about wings and things, it's sort of, to me, it means versatile. It means that the dog is 
you know, mostly on wings, winged animals, but it also is going to hunt other things. You're very true. <laughs> that is a very good way to look at it because I can make this dog pretty sure do anything at all. I was, I was coming home the other night and I'd had maybe too many gin drinks and I was in the Jeep and we were coming down the road, you know, the long lane. <laughs> And there was a bunch of deer out there. So private, just, private road, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. Private, private road. road. That's right. <laughs> and I was just across the the uh, the field there with my new. I'm corrupting some young youth. He's 22, and uh, his name's Connor, and Abby's 21, and they they uh, think I'm an old dude. Like I said, they can pay, stay up past 10 o'clock. And uh, I'd been over their house hanging out, coming home. We were in the little CJ5, my 1965 half cab. And we saw some deer, so I Wings was up on the dash looking at them, so I started chasing them, and she started barking her ass off at them. That's probably not a wise thing to do, because the first next time I had her out in the field, she she went running after some deers, but I had the e-collar on her, so it was no big deal. So, yeah, she could be very versatile, very vocal. I can make a squirrel dog out of her, no problem at all. But Patrick would, would beat me to death if I did that, so I can't do that for a while. Maybe raise some puppies Sundays out of her um but she's she needs to be a oh, so you're you're there. allowed to breed her yeah 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 there's no conditions other than just to take care of the dog okay before we leave the dog tell us w- what breed it is because i don't think we know that she's a half uh cross between a german short-haired pointer and an english pointer so a little 32 pound dog she was the smallest the run of the litter little female um, so very unique dog. I wanted a small dog, nothing large to take, uh, you know, have to up, upkeep. I like beagles and small squirrel dogs. So I'm not a, I'm not a big dog guy, 45 pound dog. She probably weighs, uh, now a little bit less than 40 pounds. I haven't weighed her lately, but, uh, I like a small dog with lots of finesse and she certainly meets that, um, that, uh, credentials for that. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to hunt and fool. 
who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. All right. What I thought you wanted to ask about, Yanni, was... uh, if you could get out after the turkeys, Kevin. You know, you can make a turkey dog out of her, too. There's no doubt. And I've got a buddy in West Virginia, and he, that's all he asked me. He said, man, if you had that pointers after a turkey, he's a turkey dog hunter. And that's on my list to do is go. Man, my kid my kid is fired up about the prospects of fall turkey hunting with a dog. Yes. He thinks yes. that sounds like how a person should spend his time. I, I, you know, I'm right with him. I'm voting with him, uh, you know. Dern ticks attract come to me like I don't know what some kind of pheromones or something I generate, but I've already picked out probably like thirty or forty off of me this year already. I hate being out there in the woods this time of year. But turkey hunting with a dog, anything with a, a dog or animal, that's that's what gets me fired up. Very you know, Yanni, whatever happened to us applying for like land between the lakes turkey tags? Did we give up on that? Yeah, we never did it. Oh, hey, you know what I just drew, Kevin? Check this out. Just today, I drew uh, for New Mexico. I drew an Oryx tag. Okay. Feral or you know. I know. I know Oryx about running that. around yeah. New Mexico. Yeah. I drew yeah. an off-range Oryx tag that's good for June. Hmm. Hot as hot. And then I drew a, a, I drew a female Ibex tag for next february great great that's that's uh, you're very lucky very, very see. lucky to get that <laughs> now so no you, you you haven't done any regular old turkey hunting this spring no no not any no. not any though it just doesn't you know after i go through hunting season i'm usually kind of wore out and stuff and I, it just does not intrigue me everybody's trying to get me to go and do that you know, and I love hearing a big gobbler gobble. And I might go some. I've got a sportsman tag, so 
Uh, I've got a turkey tag and all that. So when everybody gets it out of their system, I might go out there and piddle around and take a gun and mess around some. But uh, no, I haven't been, been turkey hunting whatsoever uh, yet. So I may end up going to get bored or whatever, do a little prospect and see what's going on out in the woods. But uh, yeah. I'll, I'll give it to everybody else first and let them kind of get burnt out. Then I might go into the tail end and mess around a little bit. So I've got no skills as a turkey hunter. I can't stay still, so... I'm still even with my bad knee moving around too much, so I leave that for the for the turkey hunters. So explain uh, the main thing I wanted we wanted to get here, and we've been trying to get you on to talk about this for quite a while. How how you you recently got back from a trip to Mongolia? How did how'd that come on your radar? Like, I know you got like a lot of wanderlust. And that's one of the reasons I love you is you got a lot of wanderlust, but your wanderlust is usually more targeted toward, you know, driving around the country, chasing small game critters around. How, how did it come to be that you thought that you had to go all hell over to Mongolia? Well, um, like you said, I, I retired 2011. Uh, I grew up always wanting to go, you know, to Canada walleye fishing or go out west, uh, Kansas, South Dakota, pheasant hunting, and never had the resources to do that. So the, as I got established and older and then I retired, um, I, I had some friends who went to Canada, been to Maine a couple of times, up in the UP, Drummond Island hunting. Um, so in... Um, uh, Where were you hunting Drummond Island? Snowshoe hares? Snowshoe hare, grouse. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, th- and those dudes, man, that's a special place right there. A, a snowshoe hare will run four to six miles up there on that island before you get it. You know, it is something to kill a snowshoe on Drummond. They run and run, and you, your shit better be in shape, or they'll, those those hares will run your dogs to death if you're not careful. I've got some buddies from West Virginia. They've got it figured out. I've teamed up there with them, and we had an absolutely fabulous time uh, running the, the, the snowshoes up there um, September, early October. Oh, really? So, yeah. Not in, we, not in the middle of the winter? No, no. no. You know, there's no hunting season. That's kind of a pre-tune for them to head north until their season comes in. And uh, sometimes it's a little bit warm, but uh, we had an outstanding hunt two years ago. But, are the rabbits turned color yet, or they're still brown? They are just starting to turn just a little bit, you know, their bellies mm-hmm. on the underside. So, yeah, I've never seen a true snowshoe, you know, solid white before. My adventures to Michigan and and uh, Maine, they've always been um, just kind of starting to turn. I did hunt snowshoe one time in Maine. My first time, I forgot that was probably like 2016. Yeah, I think 2016, I, I, I just hired an outfitter to yeah. go and hunt hunt snowshoe. Totally different than uh, running swamp rabbits or uh, cottontails. They stay in the shadows all the time. They won't get out hardly in the open at all. you got to get right in there and get right on the track pretty much. They're hard to predict what they're going to do unless you've got a good GPS and you see the dog track. So it's a, it's a little bit different hunting than uh, than our, our dumb cottontails and the, the sleek swamp rabbits that we have. We used to get them with very limited success late in the winter with snowshoes, wearing snowshoes, pushing them, trying to drive them. Just break the habitat up into chunks and try to drive them out. And if we'd go out and get one or two, we'd be all excited. 
Well, like I said, you know, you pretty much look on the GPS and we have to run our dogs from four to six miles. You can pretty much average that per rabbit. And so, you know, you might have two races in the morning, take a pack of dogs in, let them rest, and then bring another pack out that afternoon or just let them rest. So it's a, it's, you know, it's quite a, it's quite interesting to see a rabbit go that far for that long, you know, have, you know, five to eight, nine beagle hounds, you know, pounding after the thing. So I yeah. truly, truly enjoy it. Truly and enjoy. is that a four to six mile loop that they're doing? Or, uh, or, or is that multiple loops? Multiple loops. And that's how, you you know, you can, you can usually pin them down. You look on your GPS and see that track and try to get somewhere close on that track so you can kill them. Because, you know, you're in that, that conifer forest, so you can't see very far at all. Right. I mean, like, you know, a 10, 12-yard shot is about it a lot of times. So you just try to get somewhere where you think you can, you can be on that rabbit's track. Blow your GPS up as, as big as it goes. And try to find, you know, a couple loops where the dogs have brought him through there and stand right there. And then the next thing you know, he's gone 25 yards or 50 yards down the road from you or whatever. So they're pretty crafty, very crafty uh, for for rabbits. So I, I enjoy truly to have a pack of dogs and try to outsmart, to, you know, something with a, a brain about the size of a, probably a what a walnut. So yeah. Sometimes they win, sometimes I win. <laughs> All right, let's get back to this. Uh, I know I derailed you there. The Mongolia. So you've traveled around a bit. Right. Uh, 2015, I went to South Africa, and, you know, everything's high-fenced over there. I saw some squirrels after about six or seven days. I said, man, it would be a shame that I come all the way to South Africa and not get me a squirrel. So I asked the people that we were staying with, says, I want to kill a squirrel, and they thought I was kidding. And so uh, said, nobody's ever asked to kill a squirrel. You know, I think I was the first one to ever killed any Egyptian geese. I think you posted those uh, that I was that were eating and that we killed those over there. We borrowed some uh, decoys from some rednecks, South Africans, and set up at an irrigation pivot. Raymond and I, he's my wingman. Uh, he's been to uh, uh, South Africa. Then we went to uh, Nicaragua to shoot some white winged doves. Uh, and killed some Yucatan black-throated uh, Bob Whites down there. Uh, we we're going to go after some tree ducks and never did uh, get any of those. The wind was blowing so bad. And then I went to Costa Rica, caught a 100-pound sailfish, and then I we wanted to go on a truly, truly adventure. So that's how we ended up with uh, Mongolia. Just started scrolling through the Internet, thinking of things to do. And I had been fascinated by falconry. I've got a young friend up in Kankakee, Illinois, Clayton, that uh, you posted a picture of him and I. We had caught a red-tailed hawk just for him to show me how, how, how easy it was to catch a bird of prey. And uh, I don't want to be a slave to a bird. I want to be a consumer like the rest of my buddies when they go rabbit hunting. I keep them for 365 days a year, and then maybe they go rabbit hunting with me two or three times a year, you know, and have a good time. And that's the way I am with a bird of prey. I would not want to own one, be like owning a snake that eats every day. So uh, I found it very fascinating uh, to go over there and just, you know, got on the Internet and started scrolling through looking for somebody to, uh, an outfitter or something, got some references and, uh, uh Called some people up from the U.S. had been over there, and there's one guy, his name was Mark, and he had been over there. 
and uh, I kind of asked him, said, hey, mister, uh, what kind of adventures have you been on? He said, well, Sonny Boy, so when I was about 18, I was over in the Mekon Delta waiting around. I said, thank you, sir, for your service, and I appreciate it very, very greatly, and that's all the information that I need. And there was a, a couple of veterinarians out in California. They'd been over there twice, and uh, so I talked to them, I think via email or whatever, and just, uh, you know, uh, just decided we was going to go on an adventure, and that's truly what we did. It was uh, a adventure that started on... Uh, uh, I got off work at a project on the uh, Friday, uh, the 20th of September. Got up the next morning on the 21st of uh, September at 3.30. Went to the Nashville airport. Uh, flew to Atlanta. Atlanta to Seoul, Korea. Seoul, Korea to Ulaanbaatar. And then uh, Ulaanbaatar to Cove. And then drove to Ugi. So at about 4.30 Tuesday afternoon, we rode into the Eagles camp. So it was quite the adventure just getting there. Got handed off by probably nine different people. You know, they was out there Uber my ass around. They was architects, engineers. It didn't make any sense to me. I've got a like a story that would last forever on that part. But very good people. Uh, enjoyed it very much. I plan on going back in uh, probably a year or two and go down to Gobi, uh, buy me a new motorcycle, ride it around for five to eight days and then go back and see the eagle hunters that I spent uh, 10 days in the desert with. So explain these eagle hunters. They're not hunting for eagles. No, um, I had the opportunity to meet like uh, six different eagle hunters out there. And they're, uh, they're from Kazakhstan that came into the southern tip of Mongolia. Uh, Mongolia is population of about three million people. And they become uh, democratic in the early 90s, about 92. In Mongolia, to give you an example of how big it is, you start at Cincinnati, Ohio, go to Salt Lake City, Utah. That would be from, you know, left to right. And then the top would be Nebraska, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, down to Dallas, Texas. And only 3 million people live in that landmass. You know, here in Kentucky, I think we've got uh, 4.8 million, I think is what's in Kentucky. So you've got all this land mass, and you've got only 3 million people out there. I think Mongolia is the uh, uh, highest elevation occupied, occupied co- uh, country in the world. Uh, so, you know, we were always, I think, above a mile high. And Ulaanbaatar is UB, as people call it, as I call it. Uh, it's got like 1.4 million people. You know, half the population lives in one city over there. And the, really, the other... The other half want to get in there. They got seven coal-fired power plants cranking out admissions, uh, putting a strain on all the drinking water. I met some uh, environmental engineers is over there working on a project to take the water from their wastewater plant, use it for cooling water at, at the electrical plants, and then uh, uh, use their their fresh water for drinking water systems. So uh, I'm out you know, meeting people and looking for maybe a future job or whatever. If I was a lot younger, I think I would go over there for a while and work. I just fell in love with the country, with the people were so nice. Uh, it's very vast. Um, you know me, uh, you've been hunting with, usually I'm the first one or so to see some kind of animal. And I got over there and I got stressed because they were seeing all these animals and I was not seeing it because it is just so vast out through there. Uh, so, so what, what, what makes the Eagle Hunter Eagle Hunter? The fact, Okay, you know they're born into the into that family of eagle hunters. 
supposedly there's somewhere less than, you know, 300. Some people say like 100 true eagle hunters left in the world. And they'll go out and uh, uh, four of the eagle hunters that, that I met, they rode out like 75 miles to the mountains and they robbed a young uh, pup eagle, as they call it, from the nest. And they'll get the biggest eagle that's in there. That's a female. They use the female to hunt with. And then they'll bring it back home, and then they will train it uh, to work for them. Uh, and I didn't get into really a lot of detail how they did that, but I ordered a couple of books from National Geographic, and I saw one picture and read a short article that said that after they rob the bird from the nest, they bring it home and put it on like a clothesline, and, uh-huh. and the bird would sit there and flop and stay upright. And then when the bird lost all of its drive to stay upright and turned upside down, then that's when the eagle hunter would go and fool with it. And then he broke its spirit, and he would bring it back and and train it, feed it, and it become a companion uh, with them to hunt. You know, their, their natural instinct to hunt, their raptors, they want to use their talons as far as their beak for a defense weapon there. You know, I saw, you know, I met several different eagles over there and messed around with them just a little bit. Not once did any of them try to peck any of us or do anything, but their talons are very, very deadly, lots of PSI as far as force. You know, they can kill a small a small wolf pup, you know, uh, if need be. But foxes and rabbits, you know, no problem at all for them to uh, to kill a, fo- a Mongolian fox or a rabbit over there. And these are golden eagles? Golden eagles, yes. Yes, female. Female golden eagles, wingspan about six foot, weigh about, uh, you know, 14 pounds. And uh, when you see pictures of these guys, they're always on, like, they seem to have a giant bird and a dinky horse. Yes, very small mountain horse. It's, it's, it's golden in the mountains, out across the flat desert, not worth a damn in my opinion. But those dudes, man, they've got four-wheel drive. They'll go on a one-to-one slope. Anywhere you point them, they're like a mountain goat. I mean, they can really dig in and go. Their ass is scared to death of a stream. Hell, they won't even cross something that's like you know, a foot wide, unless they see where another horse or another animal has crossed, you got to get on their ass and get on them pretty hard to make them go through water. They do not like that. But yeah, they're on those small Mongolian type horses, very stable. I went out there, they had three uh, staked out. So, you know, I, I flew with horses a little bit. So two of them had their heads down at the ground, not paying attention. And they had one that had his head up. I, I checked him out and I just grabbed him as my horse. So I kept him for 10 days and I, I made a good choice. There's no doubt in my mind that I got the best out of those three horses. Now, the thing about people that are into falconry here in the U.S. at least is uh, you're not, you know, when it's all said and done, you're not really like hunting to get meat, you know. I mean, you're not getting that much stuff. What you do get, the birds messing with it, and you know, you're not like filling the freezer with a as a as someone who's into falconry. That's no, a fair. You think that's a fair statement? Oh, very much so. You yeah. know, I, I went on this trip and I I read a uh, book called Eagle Dreams. Uh, oh, I forgot the author. He's a hunter, dog guy, whatever. But I read that book and he made one trip early in the after they become uh, democratic. And they never caught anything. So I knew going in there, I did a little research that most likely that we might not catch anything. But hunting is more than that. Yeah, uh, but, but 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 my question is: these dudes, these these eagle hunters in Mongolia, 
they're just like practicing falconry. Are they are they using it because they're hunting stuff because they want to eat it? Uh, it's in their heritage, in their blood. You uh-huh. know, they, they they don't believe in killing a lot of animals. You know, they are satisfied just going out and with their eagle on their shoulder and getting after some stuff and flying it, and they don't have to kill anything. I showed them some of the pictures of like a, some epic rabbit hunts and squirrel hunts that that I had been on, and they just kind of shook their heads. And then there was one. Uh, oh, like like filling whole tailgates up full of rabbits and stuff. Right. And Didn't it was, speak to them. There was. Um, <clears throat> we went to the Eagle Festival, and we had a private concert from some musicians there, and they had one song, and it was about uh, a mother getting on to her son for killing a lot of animals. He had the uh, kill lust, as a lot of young people do, uh, and I did it one time in my life. Uh, but the song was written about that he was going out and killing too many animals. And huh. uh, uh, they uh, they had their instruments tied in with some like some little puppet things, like it was pretty. It was very very intriguing, and to hear that song to kind of go in with some culture that I had already experienced. So I knew, I knew what they thought a true hunter, and then they had a song to go along with it. So that was that was something very unique from my What's experience. The, did, <clears throat> go ahead, Johnny. Did their ancestors like use this method to as like a primary uh, way to secure protein, at, like ever, or has it always just been sort of more of a you know, not novelty, but like an ornamental type of a hunt. You know, they've very, got a very close bond with all types of animals. Uh, you know, they had dogs that would would uh, sleep all day and bark all night. And I saw some cats that were just tethered up. But I, they brought that from Kakistan. Uh, and I don't really know the relationship, how far that goes back. You know, they're nomads. Uh, I think it probably was a, a way for them to secure food at one time. You know, back in their heritage, and they just kept it going because, you know, as far as guns and weapons and stuff, they were very limited on what they could do. You know, bows and arrows, Genghis Khan, whatever. But when you've got a bird of prey that can come out of the sky after a rabbit, I would say that at one time in their lifetime that they probably were used uh, very beneficial to help them uh, be uh, be hunters and gatherers and live off the land. You know, they have a very harsh environment that they live in. Go up in the mountains and live in a, a yurt a felt tent uh, or deer or whatever we want to call it, and then spend the whole summertime up there and then come down in the valley because the winters are so severe, you know, like a minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit uh, is how bad it gets. So, yes, they are very, you know, very hardy type people there. And I could see it sometime in the history of those guys that – that they use that bird of prey to help them survive and get through. It's kind of like me, you know, with a squirrel dog. You know, at one time in history, that was a vital part of a person's house to have a squirrel dog, and they were multi-purpose. They, uh, you know, protected stock, was a guard dog at their house, whatever, and helped them gather food and maybe herd cattle or, or, or livestock, kept varmints away from the chickens. So I look at uh, eagle as being part of their history that they just keep going and at one time point in time, it's it was it paid its way by by catching uh, meat for the table. What are the primary things they like to go for? Like, what do they like to use these eagles to hunt for? Uh, there's like two or three different kind of foxes over there, and then they have the snowshoe hare. Uh, uh, there's also and they got some kind of wolf, right? They've got some wolves over there, and uh, the uh, homestead that we stayed with, our doc is the eagle hunter I was with there. 
they told me we've been there three or four, five, six nights or something there that a pack of wolves had came into the valley and killed 150 uh, goats and sheep and that they thought that it was a she-wolf teaching the cubs how to kill. And then after being there for like 14 days, I found the only or one of the only squirrel hunters in all of Mongolia and found some trees. And we were driving up the valley that morning. Well, we had been, we had been uh, like Tuesday, we come into Eagle Camp and we spent that week there. And then the following Tuesday, we left out on a four-day journey across the desert on horseback to go to the Eagle Festival in Oogie. And uh, we did that. We came into town for two days for the Eagle Festival. We were supposed to go back out and spend some time with the Eagle Festival. But uh, the people that uh, were in charge of us, I, I asked them, said, can we do something? Says, we have been out 10 days with the best eagle hunter in all of Mongolia. And to go with another eagle hunter would probably most likely be a disappointment. So can we do something else? Can we sightsee is what I asked him. He says, would you like to go see some, some red stag? I said, yes, I would like that very much. So uh, they picked us up at 730 uh, on Monday morning and on a forerunner. And we went to a uh, gas station to get some petrol. And I watched them as the, the uh, forerunner uh, gas tank clicked off. The two dudes got up on the back bumper and burped the tank to get an extra liter or two of gasoline in the tank. I knew right then that we were going to go on a true adventure that day, just trying to get a you know three point eight liters to the gallon. They would just get a couple more liters of gasoline in the tank, and we rolled in about midnight that night and across the desert. And we might come to an intersection, and there would be like five roads, and they would stop and they would look at those roads. And I got to figuring out they always kept the the moon on the right their right shoulder. All the time, all the way back through. You know, who knows? There might have been a blacktop road right out there, you know, five miles away, and they just took us across country to give us, you know, our money's worth. But and we certainly did. And I highly recommend if anybody's an adventure to go to Mongolia and spend some time. But uh, we went up the valley and looking for this certain eagle hunter that uh, knew about these stags. And as we were going up through there, I saw a, a small herd of horses, and I saw this little black horse with its left rear flank with meat hanging in the wind, it was shredded. And it looked to me like a wolf had tried to bring that, hamstring that horse and bring it down. And it ran off, I didn't have time to take a picture. And we finally, we found the eagle hunter and then through the interpreter, I asked, was that a wolf that had tried to eat that little black horse up the valley there? And he said, yes, it was a wolf. So, you know, wolves were a constant uh, threat for them. You would see uh, scarecrows out around the campsite. They would bring their livestock in around camp at night and the dogs would bark all night and you would hear them barking and stuff. They'd have scarecrows set up and up on the ridges they would have like little rock men set up to scare away the wolves. But that was pretty predominant all through the uh, the area that we stayed in to see scarecrows, rock men. Everybody had a dog that slept all day and barked all night. Um, so it was it was a true true adventure that uh, I will uh, you know just always think about and want to go back and, and do something again over there. So when you struck off to go when you struck off to go hunting, like how did that play out? You, you, you ride off into a good area. You're looking for what? You're trying to visually see it. Um, you know, we started out you know not knowing us whatever so the first first day we do we do practice to see if we can ride horses because some people come over there shit they can't ride a horse 
the, the guide told us, man, I'm so glad that you guys can, can ride a horse. And so we strike off across the desert where it's flat to just see if you can ride a horse. So I have no problem. Raymond, my, my wingman, is with me, and he sneaks his wife in, Tammy, at the last minute there, the month or two before we leave, and she's going with us. Of course, she's a nurse. I'm thinking, man, that's a good idea to have a nurse <laughs> nurse on board. So the three of us take off you know, out across the desert, just riding flat ground, seeing how we do. And then we go up into the mountains, like the foothills, and then we start looking for animals. And the foxes and stuff, they like to stay around the livestock, you know, because the rabbits feel safe around the livestock. And there's this uh, co-mingling of, you know, creatures, our food chain type deal. So, yeah. so we're out looking up on the mountaintops there. And we spend the first day with the eagle hunter and I stay with his ass like everywhere he goes, I'm right there on him. You know, riding the horse, trying to see something, trying to see a fox. And he says he sees some a couple of times, but I never see it. But we're trying up in the up in the mountains. It's pretty treacherous. It's pretty steep shit there with shale and rock and all that. You do not want to tumble off a horse because it would be bad news. But I think that first day he saw the, how interesting I was to try to catch something and I could stay with him. Then the next day we go hunting, he recruits two more eagle hunters out of the valley. And that day we do get after a fox and have three eagles in the air after the fox. And uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> we see the fox run out. And then the, the, the three eagle hunters. Like, like the fox is, is booking away from you. Right, right. We're coming up the side of a mountain, and they say, fox, fox, fox. And I'm looking, and I don't see anything because everything's monotone there. And finally, I see a little grass at the top of a ridge, and I see the fox coming over in silhouette across the ridge. So I see him then for the first time. And then he, he's over to the right, you know, two, three hundred yards. And then all of a sudden, we circle back around to the left. And I'm not a... I'm not a mountain guy at all. You know, I'm flatland, swamp, river bottom, rolling hills type dude. So we, we come around the left side of the uh, the mountain. We're on horseback, and then we post up. And then the fox, he pops out of like a ravine at the bottom. And yep. then they they take off after him on this one-to-one slope. And I'm thinking, shit, it's pretty damn steep, but I'm going to trust my horse. And I go on. Well, the guide and Raymond and Tammy, they stay behind. They It's too steep for them. So I take off after the eagle hunter's ass, and they put the three birds in the air, and then I see two birds dive bombing down over the next ridge. I think, man, they've got him over there. So I ride over the ridge, and there's two eagles on the ground, and they look like they're fighting something. Well, they're fighting each other. They miss the fox. And then the young eagle, the third eagle, he flies off because he's not – he's being trained. He's kind of like a young dog. So he flies off, and then I decide I'm going to ride off with the eagle hunter. So he gets mad at me and scolds me. He cannot speak any English. So I finally understand that I stay there with the two, the two eagle hunters, and they get their birds apart and get them back on their horses. Now, why are the, do- why are the birds fighting? Um, I guess just because they're predatorial. They miss the fox. So, you know, they dive bomb from, from high up in the atmosphere, and, and they just barely missed him. I didn't see that part of it. So they're just kind of like two dogs, you know, that gets after a critter and then, hell, there's no critter, so they get after each other. So, yeah, I got you. you. know, so it's just, uh, you know, one of those rare things that, that happen that, uh, you know, a fox is pretty wily and then you come from the top. And then you got to take in, in granted that the birds, this is the first of hunting season. Uh, they're out of shape. They're fat. It's warm. They're not that hungry. Uh, but the main thing is they're out of shape. They're not conditioned uh, for yep. this. And I kind of 
I read about that in the book, saying that if you really want to catch something, you need to go over there in the cold wintertime when everything is in shape and you've got snow on the ground and critters stand out. You know, they can see, they can pinpoint uh, what's going on. Was that the was that the sole encounter you guys had with a game animal? Oh no, oh no, no. That was like the uh, oh, I guess it was the second or third day that we had been there, and then uh, we went out a couple other times. And the eagle hunter said he saw a fox, but I never, I never did see it. But I believe him. Uh, um, but when we started our trek out, we'd been there seven days. We went uh, fishing two days. Uh, we caught some grayling. One day, that was my first grayling. We fried it up and cooked it, ate the caviar, the eggs out of it. It was very, very good. Uh, but when we started our trek across country, uh, the first day, I don't think we caught anything or got after anything. We spent the night with a family as we go in a, uh, a their mud and log hut. Just, uh, you know, the three of us in there with, uh, they had two kids and then two, uh, uh, the, the couple. So there was... Um, uh, seven of us in just a little room of, you know, probably 15 by 15. And I slept in the bed for the first time in probably uh, seven days. It's one of those old-timey spring-type beds with no mattress or anything on it, so it felt like a Cadillac, yep. like a water bed. I've been sleeping on the ground the whole time. Uh, we would burn uh, cow dung and camel dung and maybe a couple lumps of coal at night uh, during the adventure. Uh, when we were at the Eagle Hunter's house. And uh, finally one night the wind would get up. It got up so bad that it blew the top out of our our gear. And uh, the stovepipe was flapping in the wind, and they was afraid it was going to burn down. So they took the stove outside, and we moved in the actual Eagle Hunter's house and spent the last two days. But uh, the first day on our trek, we didn't get after anything. And the second day, uh, we got after a fox or two, but the third day, we got after, uh, we were coming, and they said we was going to ride up, was riding out through the desert, and we rode up on this little mountain. They said, we might get after a owl here. Now, when I first an come owl. there, an owl, yes, an owl, I said, I'm ready to catch a field mouse. I'm ready to catch something. It doesn't matter what it is. So when I first got there, I started looking at all the, the vehicles and the motorcycles. Everything had feathers tied to it. And I asked the guy, I said, what's all these chicken feathers on your handlebars of your motorcycle in your rearview mirror? He says, oh, it's a, a sacred animal, the, the owl. It protects us. And we kind of, you know, we look after the owl. I said, well, where do you, where do you get all these feathers at? He said, well, we, we get them from dead owls. So, you know, you just don't ask some, some questions to people to go into detail. And yeah. I, I found out just because someone can speak English better than me and answer my questions that they know what in the hell uh, they're talking about, and I know what they're talking about. So I just kind of dropped it, and we got over there, and we had three eagle hunters with us, our guide, and then we had we picked up a flusher boy, and his job was to ride. If we were on top of the mountain, he would ride at the bottom and try to flush a fox or a rabbit out for us, or if we were at, at on the bottom of the mountain, he would be at the top trying to flush something out or roll off a boulder the size of a... Uh, of a uh, washing machine or whatever he could or throw rocks. So we were, we were down at the bottom of the mountain and he was rolling off boulders and shit coming off there trying to drive this, <laughs> this owl out of this crevice. Yeah, I was kind of, it was kind of sketchy, you know, what was going on, but I was enjoying it. I was ready. And then I saw this, the first time I saw an animal 
the first one, I spotted a red fox, or Kazakh foxes. They've got three different kinds over there, and I'm not for sure which which one this was. But I saw this fox, and I started pointing it to him and telling him, fox, fox, fox. But they would pay no attention to me, and I got mad because I finally saw an animal on my own, and they didn't want it. They, didn't want it. they wanted this owl. So finally, um, the flusher boy ran this owl out from under this rock crevice. It flew out, but it would never get over you know, five or six feet off the ground. Just, you know how owls, they, they fly low to the ground. And then we turned the eagles loose and we had three eagles after it. And it went around the mountain like three times with us trying to flush it out of these crevices, throwing rocks, whatever we had to do. And then the last time that I saw that owl going around the bend of that mountain, it had three golden eagles after it. And then two crows or ravens come in. I don't know where they flew in from, but, but they were on the tail of 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 the the golden eagles and then it had five mongolians on horseback and then just raymond and i two americans and i don't think there's anybody in the world that's ever experienced that that type of uh, hunting experience where you've got you've got an owl three golden eagles two ravens five mongolians and two americans on horseback trying to catch a critter so the owl got away but really uh, yes yeah you know um the eagles didn't stand a chance because that thing was only like five feet off the ground and they couldn't get enough altitude up to dive bomb down and get that. But uh, it was truly something very unique uh, to witness that, to be a part of it, experiencing on horseback up on the side of a mountain. Everything was kind of sketchy. You know, their gear and their tack. If I had that shit at my house, I would throw it away. You know, it's like a, like a kid, like a kid. Well, that's saying, that's saying a lot. That's saying seen a your lot. house. That's saying a lot. You're exactly right. My big toe would go in the stirrups. You know, they were afraid that somebody was going to get hung up in the stirrups. Their reins were like a shoelace, and and the girt, they didn't even do tie a girt knot there. They would just make one wrap around, and it was like two or three days before I even noticed that. You know, that was kind of sketchy, all their equipment there. But it held up, and, you know, I made it back. But uh, we left that mountain, and we, we uh, people would just come out of nowhere. I mean, out of nowhere. But Mongolians are constantly have uh, binoculars, and they're glassing all the time, looking for something in the distance. And people would ride up on a motorcycle or horseback or whatever and talk to us. Well, they talked to the eagle hunters. And uh, some dude come in on a horseback, and he told us it was a family of foxes on the next mountain. So we rode over there, and uh, we got after we got after two foxes over there. And uh, we ran around the side of the mountain, and one of them, he froze up at the tip of the mountain. And uh, uh, the eagle hunters saw him, and the guide saw him, so we came over, and we got off the horses, and we walked over to the edge, and he was down probably about 100 yards or so, just frozen, because he didn't want to move, because there was an eagle in the air. And finally, we were all looking at him, and we gave him the stink eye. You know how animals are. You've been out before. When everybody starts staring at something, animals feel that a lot of times. I mean, they do. And so we all started staring at that fox, and, and he finally bolted, and he ran down the mountain, and there was a herd of sheep and goats down there, and he ran through them. They turned the other two eagles loose, and that fox, he headed into a headwind to the next mountain. So we got three eagles in the air, a fox running wide open, across the desert plain, headed to the next mountain, which is over a mile away. We got three eagles on his ass there. 
Well, the first eagle, he peters out about just a quarter way and turns around and comes back. The other one stays with him about halfway and comes back. And then the third one is, is on him, but he's in a headwind and he cannot, he cannot flap hard enough to catch up with him. So he just sets his ass down on the desert. And then the little eagle hunter that's with us, he, I don't know why he didn't ride his horse under. He just dismounts from his horse and he runs all the way down there and picks the and picks the eagle up on his arm and brings him back. So, you know, I saw three eagles running after a fox in a headwind trying to catch a fox and they were just out of shape and they couldn't they couldn't tackle that wind. And that fox, you know, he was smart enough that he'd come off that mountain, ran through those sheep and goats as a distraction, and then turned into the wind because he knew that that eagle would have trouble uh, uh, trying to capture him in the wind like that. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater the single most valuable tool i have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the onyx hunt app if i'm hunting turkeys i'm using onyx if i'm not hunting turkeys i'm using onyx i'm always using onyx i live by that stuff i can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt it's invaluable i use it all the time even properties i know super well and i'm at my buddy bubbly doug's house i'm using onyx and i've hunted this place a million times with their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs and I'm in the navel and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dogs' place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, 
You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So do you get the sense that these dudes, like, do they want to get something or they just want to be out messing around? Like, oh, are yeah. They re- oh, no, no, man. They want to get something because we left that mountain and went all other, and we got after... We got after another fox, and they was always on my ass all the time. You know, that damn horse rode a, a blister in my ass. It was uncomfortable, and it's jog-trotting. I'm a gated-type horse guy. I like when they hit a lick and good to travel across country there, but they were always on my ass every time I tried to gallop a horse or whatever, and we were going to another mountain over there, and we got after a fox, and uh, the flusher boy there, uh, he was trying to cut the fox off, and he had his horse at a full gallop going across the desert floor. They told us to post up and not to go anywhere. And he was at a full gallop, and he hit a lemming, a lemming uh, colony, you know, like a uh, the little animal, like a gopher that's oh, over yeah. there. And he hit that colony there, and his horse caved in on a hole, and he went head over heels off that horse. And he finally got up, brushing all the dust and everything off, holding his arm and rubbing his leg, and finally got up on his horse enough and then got back over there and still like two hours later he was still holding his arm and he was a young dude in his 30s but we got after a fox and and they said he ran up into the mountain up into a like a cave a crevasse on it and those dudes got up there about 50 60 feet climbing around and they all wore these boots those harness boots like the harley davidson motorcycle guys you know ride they ain't worth a damn for climbing around the rocks but they were up there poking around trying to find you know, where that fox was throwing some rocks trying to get him out. But, yes, they truly were trying to catch some some critters. Yeah, they wanted to catch, you know, catch something, you know, for us. But, uh, like I said, it was just the circumstances over there. And, and that's part of being a falconer that you alluded to earlier there. You go out trying to catch an animal, you're not going to get something every time. And it's kind of on an even playing field where you've got predator and prey out there. And it's just who's the strongest or what conditions you are or who's going to win that day. And if you want a guy, type of guy that wants to stack up a lot of game animals, then you do not want to be a falconer. You're in it for, <laughs> you're in it for, you know, owning a bird, taking care of it, having a relationship where you can take an animal that you have tamed and go out there and turn it loose into the wild and it trusts you enough to come back. And sometimes their eagles don't come back. Uh, one guy lost an eagle at the Eagle Festival. He turned it loose and it just decided it was going to fly off and not not come back. So he's going to go sometimes. back to being an eagle. Yes, and they do that. You know, they may keep an eagle for five or six years and then turn it loose and and then go get another one. The eagle hunter that we were with, he had a six year old eagle and a two year old eagle that he, that he was training. And then when they got um, uh, so old, then they would release them back into the to the wild and and let them go free. You know, when you're talking about 
how, how are you saying that horse likes to run and you like to run another, another way? Well, there's like a gallop, you know, jog trot and gallop, like a lot of quarter horses. And there's a canter that's kind of an easy, slow, you know, uh, 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 ride, a foxtrot, you know, different shuffle there. A gated horse has a smooth ride. And I'm, yeah. I'm not a big horseman, but like I said, you know, you can, if your ass is in a saddle, you can feel it, you know, get them in a certain. I thought a horse was a horse until uh, I got involved with them. A friend of mine, he's a big horseman, Paul. You met Paul. We went over and ate breakfast yep. at his house. So I just thought all horses did the same, whether they run the Kentucky Derby or pull the cart or whatever. But, uh, yeah, there's <laughs> riding horses and working horses and roping horses and mountain horses. And definitely those Mongolian horses are made to – Billy goat around on top of a mountain with no fear whatsoever, be on a shell slope and shit sliding off whatever and see them a nice piece of grass and bend down and, and take a big bite and not worry about falling their ass off the face of a mountain. So, yes. What I was taking the interest in in Wyoming this year when we were hunting down there on horseback is how, uh, just how bad your scroll gets just beat up, man. On a certain, when they get to trotting. Yes. There's got to be like, there's got to be tricks for that. Well, you know, you can stand up in the stirrups, but my knees are shot. They are completely wore out. So I got no cushion in my knees anymore. I cannot do that. So, you know, basically I spent about 10 days on horseback when I was over there. Was Uh, your scroll just getting just beat up? Not too bad. My ass, the saddle was too too small. So the yeah. crack of my ass was uh, cushioning the rest of me. So I didn't have to worry about that too much. But, you know, and I'm kind of a horseman, so I kind of know how to get in the saddle and, and use the back of my ass for the padding instead of the, the front of my scrotum to ride on. Yeah, someone was telling me that part of the thing is, like, not to clench up. When he starts trotting... Right, you clench your legs up, and you make less room in there for everything to lay out how it needs to lay out. Right. But I was wondering about if you went, if it'd be smarter to 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 go no undies, to go underwearless. Like if you were up there, then I got thinking, take it to extremes. Let's say you're up there and nothing. You're up there in your birthday suit. Are you still smashing your scroll? Well, you know, you use your thighs to. To, yeah, because you and to, man, to when he starts, there. yeah, yeah, and when yeah. that horse starts yeah. moving, you yeah. you clench up more. And someone said it's it's being learning how to relax your thighs and not squeeze in so bad, so that everything's getting beat up. I, I like I'm telling you, I don't remember this being such an issue when I was younger, but and it seems in the harder kind of riding, it's a real thing where I feel as though you would sat one might sacrifice his ability to have children. Not that I need that ability anymore. Well, it's kind of like riding a bicycle too. You know, you're on a bicycle seat, so you just kind of smash my scroll on a bike. Well, depends on what kind of saddle, and like I said, it just kind of comes natural to me. Where I, I've done enough miles in a horse, and you've done enough miles in a bicycle to know how to maneuver yourself where you don't hurt yourself. So I think there's mm-hmm. a lot into that. Probably the more time that you spend in a saddle, the more comfortable you get because. I can look some of your photographs and tell you you're tense on a horse and you don't, you know, you're not in control. Oh, listen, man, I'm not, listen, I would never up. come, I would never come present myself as a horseman. Now, I'm the opposite of a horseman. Right. And I'm putting it out an honest thing there where I'm sure we'll get some good feedback from listeners on it. But, uh, I just need to, if I was going to become more of a horseman, like if someone was said to me, Hey, do you want, here's a horse. You can have this horse. And if they even said, I'll even throw in like, you can keep the horse here and I'll feed the horse. 
in my mind would be, man, do I really want to smash my scroll that bad all the time? That's what would come to my mind. And, and Yanni, you're, I know that this is something that's on your mind. You do? No. I thought we talked about this. We did. I mean, it was you know noticeable, but I feel like we rode all week and not, just, I don't know. You, yeah, but you just get such a hit now and then, and it just hurts. You're you're probably leaning too far forward. Like I said, where I wore a blister on my ass because I was leaning back to not. Oh, I'm definitely know, leaning forward. That. Yeah, yeah. You need to lean back into the seat of the saddle more. Uh, I feel like I'm all tensed up, scrunched up. My thighs are. <laughs> My thighs are puckered up. I'm leaning forward, and it's just like a slug fest down in there, man. You are. Uh, you are tense. I mean, like I said, I've seen a few pictures of you, and you just got to learn to relax and feel confident and trust your horse. So you don't trust your horse, and that's one thing no. that you've got to do is trust your horse. you got to have a good horse to trust. And, um, you know, Paul, he taught me a lot about horses. I did only ridden like five or six times in my life before I met him. So I spent a lot of time in the saddle from about 92 to, uh, you know, 2002, man, we had some, some fantastic squirrel hunts with, we know we might have eight or 10 people out there and a half day with Kevin is 12 hours and a full day is 24 on a squirrel hunt. Yeah. What some of the boys would say, but you just gotta, you know, it's like riding a bicycle after you get used to it and know how to maneuver around whatever you'll keep from hurting yourself. And the same with you, you just need some more time in a saddle uh, have a good horse, have have your your stirrups and everything fit you where you can stand up and cushion yourself in a big enough seat where you can lean back and feel comfortable and find you that sweet spot where you can ride and m- maneuver and cover ground. So you just need some more time in the saddle is all. Yeah, my only horse, like, uh, I don't spend any time just messing around on horseback. It's like we get thrown into situations where you're like, oh, we're going to ride these horses up and Look for a grizzly bear. Ride these horses all through the mountains. I never just get a chance to just go out and. You need to pleasure ride. Develop so. my yeah, pleasure yeah. ride. Yeah. Develop my skills. Yeah, you need to now, go. Oh, go ahead. You just need to go out and pleasure ride and have no mission other than you spend a good day on the horse with somebody and have no mission other than to get comfortable and see the outdoors and cover some ground and find out what works for you. Yeah. Uh, your assessment of these these uh, the Mongolian guys did uh were they hunters too? Like are they like are they are they oh next weekend or this you know we're fishing then we're gonna go hunt this then we're gonna go hunt that then we're gonna go eagle hunting? Are they like well rounded all around outdoorsmen? Um, probably as far as are they like one trick ponies? Um. Yeah, you know they had high powered guns. They didn't have a lot of game there. You know it's been. I guess vanished there. Wolves, uh, you know, had a twenty-two rifle made in Russia, and they had a Bruno. Uh, I forgot what caliber it was, seven point six by thirty-nine or something. Uh, but they didn't talk about hunting a whole lot. Uh, it, but as far as fishing and living off the land and all that, yeah, they just didn't have. You know, they worked and had to uh, to take care of themselves. But as far as having organized hunts, now some of the one of the guys that uh, was uh, driving us around, he had a uh, Dragunov Russian sniper rifle. And he talked about bear hunting. Uh, he wasn't an eagle hunter. You know, the eagle hunters are kind of like nomads. So they yeah. whatever it takes to live off the land is what they do. They, they're sheep herders, goat herders, have camels, uh, have 
uh, cattle cross with the uh, all the Mongolian cattle. I'm going blank. Uh, you know, they are basically their diet is red and white, uh, dairy products and meat. Uh, as far as vegetables and things of that nature, they do not have. So a lot of yogurt, uh, cheese, things of that nature, cream, milk, whatever we had over there. But uh, as far as a hunter, uh, they knew how all the animals act, whatever, you know, whatever it took to kill a wolf, catch a wolf or whatever. Yes. But, you know, my experience with them was just around the camp, traveling on horseback, uh, fishing. Uh, so we didn't have the opportunity to see a whole lot of different game over there. We never saw a rabbit when we were out eagle hunting. Now, coming back from the little squirrel hunting dude there, we got into, we saw a Siberian lynx. Our European lynx. No kidding. And yes. Yes. It crossed the road in front of us. Uh, I got out, tried to force it around, circle it back around because cats usually are very curious and not really afraid of humans that much. Mm-hmm. And and I got into it and I noticed that uh, there was a bunch of sticker bushes, thorn bushes there. And then I put two and two together. That night when we were coming in, we saw several rabbits and they were around that same type of vegetation. So the rabbits, you know, they'd be like briar patches here. When we yeah. were out in the desert, we never, I never saw that vegetation whatsoever anywhere. And they told me that most of the rabbits were up in the rocks, so they didn't feel comfortable getting out, you know, uh, being silhouetted or whatever. But we saw rabbits. I saw the lynx with the, in, the, in the thorn bushes, and then that night saw several rabbits coming in by moonlight, and they were always in the thorn bushes. So uh, you can include this trip in there or not, but – um. If you had, uh, well, let me ask you this first. If it, are you gonna like? Am I gonna talk to you in a year, and you're gonna be a falconer and not a and not just like a dog man? Uh, no. Yeah, I could give up dogs for birds. Sorry, that'd be real. I, I wouldn't like that. No, as I said earlier, I think I do not want to be a slave for a bird because you know uh, when I go on a hunting trip, I may take a pack of beagles or a bird dog or a squirrel dog, and then I still got some troops at home. Uh, I've got some very good neighbors that come over and take care of my critters while I'm gone. I would not want to put that on anybody taking care of a bird. And and it doesn't, uh, I'm fascinated by that. I've got some friends. I've got Clayton. I've got a young boy and he's, uh, Connor, he's getting uh, his paperwork together. And I put him together with a, a, a friend that I talked to on the telephone and been a lifelong falconer. So you got to go into our apprentice program for a year uh, and then you have to take a test, and people have to sign off on you, and then you get a permit to catch you a bird. But now, as far as me going out and hunting, I hope he gets one. I will be a consumer. I'll take my dogs, maybe uh, borrow some horses. I'm out of the horse business right now, and we go out and catch us a squirrel or a swamp rabbit or maybe uh, out west and catch some, some uh, um, game birds or whatever. But no, I don't, I don't ever see me. I have no ambitions of being a falconer. I appreciate the sport. I want to go, go back to Mongolia. I want to go in the U.S. and and go on some hunts, but uh, I'm fascinated by it. But as far as being bound to a bird, no, not me. What was your, uh, out of your season, your 2019-2020 season, what uh, what were some, like, what's the biggest lesson you learned? If you, if you factor in Mongolia, everything else, what would you find out about yourself, about hunting? Uh, you know, uh, hunters worldwide are golden, and there's a certain bond that you can do uh, by just small things. 
that puts you all in uh, a brotherhood. Uh, you know, uh, just some things that you can do. Uh, um, to give you an example, um, um, our young guy started out with us. He's 31, uh, Ival, and uh, when we, when our game plan changed and we wanted to go sightseeing, they put an older guy guide with us, uh, Tupac, and he'd been over there. I during, thought he was dead. Well, he lives in Mongolia. <laughs> he lives in Mongolia, and I was kind of uh, uh, not happy, not pleased that they would swap guides up us. But it worked out for the best, and I have two friends over there now. But uh, he had been there around socialist time. He had re- he had led several geological uh, expeditions out into the desert and uh-huh. the mountain region, looking for tungsten, uh, rare earth elements, uranium, copper, and all this. And he knew about mining and tungsten and all that. And I, at first, with my geology background, I find it very interesting and inquisitive. And you can see the landscapes over there. You know, no vegetation, so you can see veins where tungsten were and the copper, the, the, the different types of rock formations and all that. So we, uh, we uh, uh, went up the valley, made friends with the eagle hunter. I saw that he had a squirrel. He told me about getting a squirrel and where they were. And somewhere or another, we got into the tungsten uh, part of it. And he, he had some, not supposed to, all the government owns all the minerals and resources over there. But he had some, and he showed that to me. And I felt it very fascinating. I, and I so much wanted to be a tourist and say, I would like to purchase a small piece of that tungsten from you. But I didn't. Kevin didn't do that. So uh, he showed it to me. I handled it in my hands, whatever. And uh, we went. Uh, the, he said about 4 o'clock, the stags would come out, and we could start looking at them. And they were about 2,000 meters away up on the mountainside. And we were glassing, and finally a doe came out and saw her, and then I, I, I looked over to our guide, and I said, you tell the young eagle hunter, said, uh, if I was 10 years younger, we would be having that doe for five-finger feast tomorrow. And he, he, he told him that, and immediately, for some reason, he got up and went in the house and got started beating on something and come out there and gave me a piece of that tungsten. And of all the things that I oh, brought yeah. back, you know, that I paid for whatever, that is my most cherished uh, uh, memento from the trip is that small piece of tungsten that I didn't ask for, whatever, but we just kind of communicated. He knew that I was golden then, that I would most likely supersede laws and values to be a true part of the culture over there. So that's probably my golden lesson there, that there's a bond when people do certain things that you can tell, they can talk all they want to, but till they really do something, do you know that they are part of the brotherhood? So he knew that, hey, at heart, I was a hunter, and I didn't have to have a permit, but I would go up there, and we would kill that animal together and have a feast. And it just clicked. I mean, it's just something magical, surreal about that. Uh, So that's probably one of my big lessons that that I learned. And then uh, my buddy Raymond, he taught me. He's my wingman. He goes all over the place with him, but he will not go into any gentleman's club in any foreign country. He won't let me go in there either. So, okay. uh, <clears throat> but we were out hunting and he showed me uh, the difference between a, uh, where a squirrel had been eating an acorn and a, and a, a blackbird or a bird, blue jay, whatever. Uh, do you know the difference? Have you ever seen nope. that? 
Okay, if you'll uh, uh, hold the acorn up, you know, the wood floor was covered with acorns where something had been eating on them. Yeah, but, yep. but they pull the cap off and then they, they, they like scoop it out with her beak. And you can see beak marks in the acorn where, where I guess they hold that in their one of their claws and pull the cap yeah. off of it and they were able to eat that. But I, uh, he, he taught me that and I did not know that. So that's something about nature. That I didn't. I just thought they were squirrels or whatever. I knew that they come in and eat acorns, but I, now I can distinguish whether it's uh, been eaten by a bird of some type or a squirrel. Well, that's a good trick to have. So, yes, yeah, you know, something a little tidbit of information. You're never too old to learn something. Yeah. Listen, you know, Ke- Kevin, fi- finish that uh, the squirrel hunt in uh, Mongolia story, and, and then because you said you met the only other squirrel hunter in Mongolia, so did you bond with that dude? <laughs> That's that's the guy that 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 uh, broke me off a piece of tungsten and oh, okay. gave it to me. And I got a bottle of wine out and we drank. And he told me about going up in the mountains. It's a, like a European black squirrel. And I've got a picture of holding up the pail. That was one of his. You know, they'd have these like a little shrine in their house where if they they're eagle hunter, they would have like a a rabbit pelt, uh, a, a, a hair pelt, snowshoe hair. Uh, fox, whatever. Well, he had a squirrel pelt hanging on his wall, and I instantly bonded with him when I saw that. And he told me they they lived up in the mountains, and there was some timber. That was the first part of Mongolia that we actually saw any trees. The rest of it was just rock and just arid, uh, uh, just you know, high mountain desert. I call it desert. It's really the the mountainous, the most mountainous region, most barren region, least populated in all of Mongolia. You got uh, Russia up on the top. You got Kakistan kind of in the middle of the point, and then China. We probably got within 15 miles of China, our closest, and within 75 miles of Russia and Kakistan uh, during my trip. So we're in that far left corner of Mongolia, uh, right on the border of China, uh, Kakistan, and uh, Russia. You know how to sit with you eating all that, eating just meat and, and, and dairy? I feel like that'd tear some people up. Well, you know, we were concerned about that. Everything that we had read said, you know, the, the, the food was kind of bland, bring you some hot sauce, some salt, whatever. So uh, the first stop that we made uh, after we got situated was to go into a small grocery store. We bought five pounds of salt, a bunch of different hot sauces, all that. To make the long story short, we left it all with them. Our food was excellent. We had our own cook. Uh, we had some type of vegetables every single day. I ate a banana just about every day. I took uh, ester vitamin C and a vitamin B1, uh, basically same formula as airborne. You know, we were at high altitude the whole time. Uh, I was worried about altitude sicknesses, but, uh, you know, we ate like kings over there, and finally we had to tell them, said, hey, cut our food off. Uh, but uh, we had a cook, Zoya, and I made some, uh, she showed me how to make some Kakistan donuts and fried them in uh, cheap fat. Uh, one night, huh. but uh, our meal, they had, you know, special meal for us. Uh, we'd have eggs and cream of wheat and uh, peppers, and we had a pretty wide variety of food to eat. And so we did not have, you know, traditional, just a red and white diet. So they were very gotcha. accom- they were very accommodating with us on that, and the food-wise, it was very good. Uh, every little homestead that we came into, the Mongolian people very friendly. It's like old old country folk. When I was a kid, you come to their house, 
They get their best food out that they've got. It may be leftover biscuits, country ham, bacon, some old coffee, sweet tea, or whatever, and they would have us a feast, and they wanted to hear about what was going on in America, about our kids, or about our jobs, and it was just wholesome. I mean, I just I just fell in love. The longer that I stayed over there, the stronger that I got, and the more that I liked the country and the people. Even though there's a communication barrier there, you know, there's always some kind of interpreter or whatever saying, and some people welcomed me into their house. Uh, one of our uh, 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 um, drivers, his uh, family, uh, his his uh, younger sister, she was young, and she played uh, like a little uh, 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 musical instrument, so she serenaded us uh, during a, one visit. Uh, so it was, it was a truly adventure, just jam-packed food, uh, entertainment. Uh, you know, when I went to the Eagle Festival, I met uh, little spy girl Jillian. You know, I spent 10 days out in the desert with the best eagle hunter in all of Mongolia, and then we pay money to go to this event where all the eagle hunters bring their eagle in and they do competition. It would be like, uh, you know, being out west, uh, bird hunting with the very best bird hunter like Patrick and his dogs uh, for 10 days and then going to some pay preserve and paying money to shoot some quail that's been raised in its cage the entire life. So Got that was, that was kind of the scenario. So I just couldn't get into it. And there's a bunch sure. of tourists, bunch of tourists there. And I, I looked around and I saw this blonde headed girl with this orange toboggan on so saying, hey, come talk to me. So I went over there and started talking to her. And uh, she said she was a uh, junk bond dealer off of Wall Street. And she wanted to do some traveling uh, before she got too old, uh, in, her, in her early 30s. And so she found me fascinating that uh, I squirrel hunted and hunted and did all that. And uh, we've become friends. And she even came in in uh, the 28th and 29th of February and um, I took her, and we got a swamp rabbit and a, a uh, fox squirrel. So we are, really? we are friends today. Oh, uh, like like dating friends or friends? No, friends, fr- friend friends. Just, you oh, know, okay. I've, I've recruited someone into the, uh, uh, you know, I have done the recruitment. Uh, we've got retention and reactivation. So I've got a young a lady, female, that never been hunted in her life, uh, had never killed an animal, that uh, her first animal was a swamp rabbit. And Yanny had even killed a swamp rabbit yet. Have you That's asked? good. No. Nope. So, so no hell no. So uh, yeah, we're we're friends, and uh, she finds hunting very fascinating, and uh, it's a pretty unique story. And, you know, she's traveled around the world, went to Antarctica, sent me some pictures about being down there with uh, the walruses and the penguins and all that. So uh, you know, I'm ready to anybody I can get in the hunting world. Not everyone is is made to be a hunter or a traveler, or whatever. But I'm all for recruitment, getting people in, and to show them that hunting is more than killing an animal. It's going out, maybe going to, you know, maybe I just go to Barron Springs, Michigan, and and meet some of the local people, go out and eat and, and enjoy uh, their friendship, you know, once a year. Or maybe I go to a foreign country and see what all they eat and meet a person that uh, maybe I just become friends and just talk on the Internet or, you know, telephone call or letter or whatever. So there's a lot more to a hunter than just going out and killing a, an animal. Uh, there's, a, you know, friendship, camaraderie. There's a common bomb, very complex, uh, you know, uh, scenario of being, being a hunter. And not everyone is meant to be a hunter. Um, so, you know, I can respect people that don't want to hunt. Um, I'm after the people that's in the middle that, uh, that would 
that I could recruit into the honey world. Um, you know, at one time I had lots of competition and I don't have any competition anymore. It just seems less and less every year that we have people out hunting, hunting with dogs and pursuing, you know, nature. So I'm all for trying to get as many people as we can into the into the field and, and help support, you know, buying license and protecting our environment. And if you don't want to hunt, that's, that's your right. You don't have to hunt. Hell yeah, Kevin. So. Thank you, man. I can't wait to... Uh, we got to get back out. I'm ready. I'm, we got to like get said. back out bad. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. And I'm talking to kind of getting out where we get something. I like it. But uh, we got we to... Gotta, uh, I, I got to... We gotta we gotta talk about a couple quick things here, Kevin. I'm gonna act like I'm telling you about it, and then you act real interested. Okay. Okay. And then listeners will will not realize they're listening to uh, us plugging our own stuff. Yeah, so you can ask questions too if you want, Kevin. Okay. We got a new uh, new new series, new YouTube on our YouTube channel. A new thing we're putting out called Meat Eater Hunts. Different stuff. It launches. Wednesday, April 22nd. I know. Already happened. It's already out. Launched. That's what I meant to say. April 22nd. Meteor's YouTube channel. Uh, We got two new... We put up two new episodes every Wednesday. The ones we just put up so far, first week's episodes, is a spearfishing trip me and uh, Yanni did in the Channel Islands. And then we got uh, one of Yanni's elk hunting trips. Yanni's elk hunting in Colorado. So those are the first uh, first week's episodes of Mediator Hunts. This is something we'll be rolling with and doing more and more of coming up. So check those out. The what sp- else, Yanni? So, yeah, how's that sound, Kevin? Oh, the, are you going to go watch? Uh, the spearfishing, that's right up my alley, you know, to go hunt some fish, you know. Dude, it's the greatest <laughs> thing in the world, man. You know, when I go fishing, I like for them to be biting. I don't like fish for fish. Now, I can go hunting and hunt for something and not get it, but on the fish – I want to be out out hunting. So that spear fishing, that sounds like on my bucket list. You know, oh, it's getting it's kind great. of short. I wasted, but, uh, I wasted my life, man. I wa- <laughs> if I'd have found out about it, I would have taken a different – if I'd have known about it earlier, what I know about it now, I would have taken a different path in life. I'd take a different path. I would be living in some cold-ass mountains, I can tell you that. I'd be living in some tropical environment right now. Um. So everybody should go check that out. Meteor Hunts, go on YouTube channel, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We got all, we have all kinds of junk up there. Good stuff, good junk up on that. And uh, Kevin Murphy, dude, I miss you so bad. Know that I can't hang out with you and I can only look at you. This is going to lift soon, though. We're going to start getting back to normal. Oh yeah, makes me depressed. Yeah, very I miss much. you very much. I miss you bad. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's you- good having you on though. I'm glad seeing you guys, and like I said, you're just like family. You're in the brotherhood of, you know, we we bond together. We get it, you know. You don't don't even have to say things. You know, a good hunter can just look at somebody and go after game or whatever and know what the other guy's thinking. And that's part of the being a well-accomplished hunter there, that you don't have to, you know, talk or whatever, body language, just eye contact, say, hey, we need to do this. It's kind of, you know, like uh, telepathic with, a, oh, with yeah. really good hunters. And I I'll put you two guys right in there with me on that part. So, uh, yeah, maybe we get Yanny a uh, swamp rabbit one of these days. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, Kevin. All right. 
He might have to get rid of that that mohawk. We'll talk about it. He might bring, he might be able to bring that mohawk with him. All right, Kevin Murphy, world's greatest small game hunter. Kevin, I got to tell you this: we recently had a guy ask. Uh, he wrote in to ask, "Who's the second greatest small game hunter?" And we told him uh, we didn't really have any ideas for him. It's not that kind of thing. There's like the greatest, and then there's everybody else. Well, I appreciate it. I'm trying to groom a bunch of people into being the the second best, and there's a lot Number of guys two. out there. Yes, there's a lot of guys out there that can fill my shoes, and I'm going to do whatever possible I can to help them get up there to be number one. That is uh, my goal in life from, from here on out to, to help either your accomplish or the beginning hunter or whatever. If I can help you in any way, I wanted to send a message to say, hey, get out there. And, the, and everybody's wanting advice, but the best way to do it, like you guys know, is just get out there and start doing it and do what fits you because everybody's different. Uh, and how they tackle things. So, but yep. uh, just do see, you know, like riding a horse or riding a bicycle. Hey, get out there and do it and see what fits. Man, next time I see you, Kevin, I'm going to see you for real. All it's right. not going to be on this screen. I'm going to reach out and give you a pinch on the cheek or a titty twister. I don't know what, but I'm going to, I'm going to make physical contact with you, Kevin. You guys right. maybe ought to go right, do s- go do some pleasure riding together. There you go. Yeah, you come. We come go on horses. Work. No, we're going to go hunting. Um, <laughs> all right. Kevin, thanks again, man. Thanks for having gotta, me. I appreciate dude, it. Dude, I miss you so bad. I miss you so bad. I can't stand it. Uh, you too, Giannis. Hey, thanks. All right, guys. Kevin, world's greatest small game hunter, Murphy. Take care. Thank you. See you, Kevin. See you. All right, signing out. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.